I'd written you a small note, but I mean, can I say on your podcast that I am really delighted? I think Puck Rock HR, I mean, you are it. You have had this attitude since the day I met you. You have been an iconoclast. You have been willing to punch at the, and if it's the glass ceiling, but it's more than the glass thing, it's like the glass walls too, because there's sort of like all these rules, man. And you know, when you said about like suckers, like, that is one of the things I say almost to everybody I ever meet, which is like, don't be a sucker. Rules and lines are for suckers. Don't stand in line. Don't follow rules. Like those things, like, you know what? Don't be an idiot. Hey, everybody. This is Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Punk Rock HR. My guest today is Frank Roche. Frank is one of America's leading experts on executive compensation and benefits. But he didn't start out that way. Frank is a baby boomer who had a portfolio career before it was cool. He's been a writer and a journalist, a political junkie, a technologist, and a corporate advisor at very senior levels. But he's also a podcaster with one podcast about postcards and another podcast about his journey with pancreatic cancer. Frank has always inspired me not to be a sucker. And in this conversation, we talk about the early days of the social web and what it was like to put yourself out there and have big ideas that were controversial. And we also talk about what Frank is thinking about today, which is cancer, but not just that. Frank was there with me in the early days of punk rock HR, and he's always in my head when, I don't know, I get a little too big for my britches or I start to believe my own hype. I hear his voice in my head like, eh, stop thinking about yourself as such a big deal. And yet he's one of my biggest champions out there. So I just love this conversation with Frank Roche, and I hope you do too. Hey, Frank, welcome to the podcast. Lori, thank you for having me on your show. I'm really delighted. That's super sweet of you. Normally, you're a little crankier <laughs> in your opening. Oh, screw you. Like, what? What? What am, I, what am I doing here? Like, what? I love it. I love it. I just want you to be <laughs> you. And you are a guy who has inspired me for almost 15 years. Do you know that? No, I have no clue about that part. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing you've inspired me most on is this idea of don't be a sucker right? I mean, don't be a sucker. That is, I think, what I've taken away from working with you, from hanging out with you, from getting to know you over the past over a decade. Don't be a sucker about the hype around work, leadership, social media, HR, any bullshit out there right now. And then also in this weird journey of cancer that you're on right now, like don't be a sucker and that my brother is on, like don't be a sucker. And that's kind of what I want to talk about today. Like you... Early on, worked with me going to these conferences and blogging in like 2009 and 2010. And it was like old timey times, right? Where they're trying to sell us lead and milk. It was back in the golden days, right? Right? Exactly. (laughs) We're all gold rushing, you know, all that kind of stuff. Can you tell me a little bit about what that time was like? Do you remember working together in those early days or just hanging out together? I do. That was, you know, those are kind of weirdly heady times. And I think you've sort of coined that phrase about, you know, sort of micro celebrity or sort of internet celebrity. And you were the most celebrated and still are. And, you know, I was kind of hanging out. I had an agency, you know, 30 people had a lot of mouths to feed and uh, we were doing a lot of, you know, big M&A work. And it was really fun. I mean, I, if I think about those crazy days, I wrote a blog back then called No HR, like K-N-O-W-H-R. About the fourth post that I wrote got to the top of Dig 
and read it <laughs> and everything. And it got more than a million views in like just two or three days. And it was called the 10 greatest presentations ever or something like that. It was one of those kind of, it had Steve Jobs and all that sort of stuff. And man, did the audience come and the people just poured in and that friggin' thing that was getting 40,000 people a day reading these sort of, you know, and I kept <laughs> narrowing and narrowing. And I mean, I think you were writing so much and out there, like you said, these conferences and People seem kind of thirsty for that stuff. I don't know if it was just the sort of the advent of the internet. I mean, it wasn't the very beginning of the internet, but it was kind of the... Like a second wave. It was the wave when people actually were on it. It wasn't just sort of listservs and things, right? It was a time when, you know, people were paying attention and it was easy to get attention because there really weren't that many people. And then, you know, and then... (laughs) I guess the other part that I thought was funny was there was a sort of a little bit of fussing that was going on among people that were playing in the space at the same time. So there was advocacy, sort of, you know, linky love. Remember in the blogger days? It was just, I, I swear to, I don't know what it was. Like, was that the Wild West? Was it a little bit of the Wild West? It might have been the Wild West. I mean, there were a lot of things socially going on as well. I mean, people were unhappy with the Bush administration. So that was happening. The war was just a mess in general. And you had these HR professionals who were literally discovering the internet. Like, they were just like, oh yeah, it's more than my AOL email. And then coming on and getting offended because we were saying things like, you should treat your employees like human beings. How about that for a thought? Yeah, it was just strange. The idea that like they actually employ adults. I mean, what a crazy, crazy idea. I mean, in my professional life, I was saying that all the time, but that was one-on-one. When you start saying that with a megaphone, boy, do people get their... What do we say that would be less offensive than their panties in a twist? I'm sorry to be so anachronistic, but I'm old. I, You know, I love it because back then you were running a business and you were one of these first early bloggers who had a life where you had to, you know, meet payroll and do all... You know, you were an entrepreneur, but you were also doing this thing where you were blogging. And there was, I think, just a realism that you had like, Lori, at the end of the day, it's the money that matters. (laughs) Like this blogging stuff is great, but you're a businesswoman. You're an entrepreneur. So you were an entrepreneur. Can you tell us a little bit about the business that you ran? Sure. Yeah. I'd come out of consulting, big consulting, where I'd, you know, run the European practice for a huge HR consultancy. And I had uh, ran the human capital practice for that. And I had spent years and years sort of helping companies shovel, you know, stock options to their employees and talking about shareholder value and all that kind of stuff. And then one day I kind of woke up and said, wait a minute, I want to do something very, very different. And that's what we call the company. I fractal is the interrupt the pattern idea, but to do it really differently and charge people a lot of money to frame up messaging and that we mostly did big M&A work. I mean, our, you know, our first big project was the Sears Kmart merger, which, you know, ended up both being a, you know, an interesting time. And you and I both being from Chicago, we have some thoughts about <laughs> yes. what happened with all that. Yeah, I mean, it turned out real well, Frank. Good job. Well, yeah. I, I tell you what, you know, when I watch up in the air, I, you know, I'm like, I was that guy, right? Like, because we were framing up, I mean, not only doing the communication, but doing the organizational development that went along with that. And, you know, 220,000 people went home. I mean, that is a city worth of people in 18 months. That was just, you know, nonstop. It was very lucrative for the firm. We were able to launch. I had done a lot of M&A in the past, but, you know, we were able to really take that on as a practice and do behavioral communication and, you know, hired writers and designers and coders. And we built a lot of software that was decision-making software, primarily focused in the HR space. We did things like building pay modelers. And then uh, when the economy turned inside out, 
the very tool that we had built that was making decisions about pay for performance, we were able to flip on its head and help companies make a reduction in force decisions. And that was who was performing poorest. So in other words, it wasn't just giving haircuts. What we were doing was consulting with companies to help them make decisions about getting rid of people who were the least value. So that wasn't just a matter of cut 10% of your workforce, cut 20% of your workforce, which is like the stupid way to do it. The smart way was, is there somebody who's making $200,000 a year who, you know, he hasn't done anything in 20 years and he's just hanging on, baby. You know, get rid of that guy. And back in those days, that would be 10 other people, right, that you could keep. So that, you know, don't be stupid. Don't just haircut your place. Make some rational decisions. We had a piece of software that really was helpful. And that got us through, I mean, boy, you know, a lot of consultancies, you know, agencies went out of business during that period of time, during the, you know, the downturn, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, you know, all along there. And we were honestly making money hand over fist. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about that because some people from, you know, our progressive wing of the world would say that's blood money, right? Like you took money and this is why I love you, Frank, because you're not a sucker, right? You took, you took this money and you did some tough work, but on the flip side of it, you employed people, you kept people in work during the great recession and hopefully you did good ethical work. I don't know. How do you explain it? We did. I had a philosophy that we were going to pay our employees at the 99th percentile. I wanted everybody who worked there to make more money than any other possible job that they could ever have. And, you know, a lot of them, once we, you know, spun the flywheel down and closed the firm, you know, went on to other things, Google, Facebook, Amazon, you pick it, you go and then, you know, people are now CIOs and, you know, a couple of them are on their track to be CEOs. And we started out, I, you know, I hired really young people, paid them a lot of money and expected a lot and we got it and we did gain sharing. We did a lot of things out in the community. We did sponsorships for, you know, a couple bike teams in Philadelphia, a women's bike team that was sort of on the ropes and we were able to really help them out. And we felt like we were trying to help out in the community. Look, I don't know that it's completely noble work to help people to go through, you know, reductions in force. But on the other hand, that was going to happen either way. And we sort of figured that we were helping companies make more rational decisions. I mean, we're, and that wasn't the only work that we were doing, but I got to tell you, it stings. I mean, when, when you think about it, it could feel like like blood money. On the other hand, I knew it was going to happen. I, you know, you could see the writing on the wall and what try and help companies think about. I started having some thoughts after having spent many, many years, you know, advocating for shareholder value. I mean, look, I had communicated about this. I had helped with, you know, executive stock options. I had done huge projects. I did one project for a global international company in which we gave away 600 and some million dollars in multiple countries. And the people, what they had to do is people had to buy a share in order to get a share. And, you know, I did all kinds of things like that that were shareholder value oriented. I philosophically struggled with that. And ultimately, you know, some of the consultancy was to try and help companies think through what was most important, really informed by a client I had that was in the Netherlands, and I'll leave them unnamed, but they're a huge bank merger. And one day I was talking to the CEO, and we got to talking about shareholder value and just sort of nostalgia about that. And, you know, and I said, well, you know, in America, the situation is, you know, shareholders first, and then company and then, you know, employees. And he said, well, listen, big pregnant pause, and here's how it works here our employees, the community, and then the company. And, you know, this guy was like practical royalty, right? He's making a lot. And his comeuppance to me was, you know, listen, kid, in a very nice way, but, you know, <laughs> it's employees first and then the community. 
you know, sort of the, what you talked about, you know, can we keep people employed? There's an idea of keeping employment and making sure that we're following, looking out in the community. And then ultimately shareholders, which by the way, shareholder, what a joke. I mean, in, in 2020, these guys are day traders. Everybody's yeah, day trader. Just, right. just watch CNBC this morning, see what's going on. Yesterday, down 2000 in the Dow, up thousand a day. These people are not holding companies for the long term. These guys are day trading. So when, you know, when I was consulting and doing that kind of work, I would sort of say to very senior people, come on. <laughs> I don't know whether it changed too many, but I got to say it gave me a platform to say it in big forums. And when people are paying you uh, really a lot of money for your opinion, they got them from me. I did not just cut it straight down the middle. But ultimately, Frank, you've made the decision in your life. Like you've left the world of consulting. You've left the world of business ownership. You went back to your roots as a writer, as a journalist. I did. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. I made enough money. (laughs) So that was, you know, money can cure a lot of ills. So I had comfort. You know, sort of my backstory. I really grew up very, very poor. And, you know, I felt every dollar that I got, I feel really lucky about. But I, I, I have a little bit of perspective on that. So, you know, I got lucky, was able to, you know, spend, I, we'd done enough, made enough, played out enough of the games. And, you know, I got sort of tired of that. So we spun that down. And then I did do one just out of curiosity. I went and worked for a company for a couple, well, three, four years to basically build a communication agency inside the place. And that was fun for a small while. But, you know, basically I I wanted to get back to just doing the writing and kind of doing that more by myself where I could really control everything about it. So the only mouth I have to feed is mine and I don't need to really feed my mouth. So I'm okay. So I can choose projects. And luckily, yeah, I, I have really good writing projects that I'm able to do that people are willing to pay me appropriate amounts of money and I can exercise my brain a little bit. And then that also gives me freedom to do the kind of writing that I want to do just personally. So, you know, I can do both. Well, you've also started some podcasts. So first, tell us about the Postcardist podcast. Yeah, I have collected postcards since I was a kid. Um, I, I wrote to my grandmother every week from the time I was a little kid and she used to write me back. I wrote postcards, she used to write letters. And so I did that for years and years. And, you know, she's been gone since the late 90s. But nonetheless, I was always collecting postcards. I probably have 40, 50,000 postcards, something like that. But I started a few years ago, two or three years ago, I started a podcast called The Postcardist. And it was just a matter of getting people in the postcard community together to talk about it. It's the first mover, the only mover. <laughs> <laughs> real niche. niche yeah, really is. Yeah. Surprisingly, it has a, is a really active audience. Now, I, I've been ill over the last year and I have done that show less. I probably, I've made I mean, 70 or 80 shows and then got sick. And then just decided to do them sporadically now. I mean, I was doing weekly shows and interviewing people. And I still have that. I I have a bunch of people lined up to take over the show for a while. I got one more thing I got to do for my health. So people are going to take over my show for a little while just to record and make shows. And surprisingly, it's a very active community of people that do this. I know it seems really weird and esoteric, but I pushed over that 10,000 mark of listeners pretty quickly. And I was pretty happy about it. Well, they say you have to get small to get big, right? So, and it's really, (laughs) I feel with the rebranding of punk rock HR, I'm living that right now. (laughs) I am. I I really am. I'd written you a small note, but I mean, can I say on your podcast that I am really delighted? I think punk rock HR, I mean, you are it. You have had this attitude since the day I met you. You have been an iconoclast. You have been willing to punch at the, and if it's the glass ceiling, but it's more than the glass thing, it's like the glass walls too, because 
because there's sort of like all these rules, man. And you know, when you said about like suckers, like that's one of the things I say almost to everybody I ever meet, which is like, don't be a sucker. I know. Rules. Yeah. Don't stand in line. <laughs> rules and lines are for suckers. Don't stand in line. Don't follow rules. Like those things, like, you know what? Don't be an idiot. By the way, I learned don't stand in line in, in the Netherlands when I lived in the Netherlands for a while. Because they don't, it's got elbow. Like you get behind in my elbow, man. Like if you're, if you hesitate, I'm in front of you. Bam. <laughs> right. I'll cut you off, right? You, you lived in Europe too. You know how this works, right? So I do, I do. Yeah. And so like you've been faster smarter and more willing to say the wicked words that people sometimes don't want to hear. But I mean, and you say them because they're meaningful. You're not just red meat and people. You're out there with a thoughtful way of provoking conversation. I, I really admire this and I'm glad you rebranded. That's super Oh, cool. thank you. Thank you. Well, I think back on those early days and you were just so you. And I mean, there were others in our community, right? But you were so instrumental in showing me that I didn't have to compromise, right? And I also should not believe my own hype. So thank you for all of that. But you know, there's part of me and it's not imposter syndrome. It's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're only as good as the last thing you did, right? I mean, that might be Midwesternisms as well within me, but I really feel like, Frank, you were just such an early and constant positive influence on my writing, on my thinking. And you're on this journey right now. And I don't know if you want to talk about it. I mean, it's up to no, you. No, there's nothing, there's nothing off limits. Okay. I'm, I'm All right. fine. You and I have known each other forever. So there's nothing off limits. All right. So, well, why don't you tell us what journey you're on? And it's even such a stupid way to introduce it. And I'm kicking myself, but I don't know how else to talk about it. Lori, there's no magic words. I mean, this is one of the things I've discovered. So for your audience members, it's been exactly one year ago. I got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. I started getting really sick for about a month and then I got jaundice and then I was really super sick. Don't let this happen to you. But if you start peeing things that look like root beer, then go to the hospital. Like, and I didn't know that. So anyway, I got, I have pancreatic cancer, stage three, it's wrapped around a mesoteric artery. It's all those bad things, right? When you hear you got pancreatic cancer, basically, you know, most people kind of look at you and go like, okay, dead man walking. And by all rights, I should be, I should be dead now. I mean, I was told when I was first diagnosed that I wasn't going to see December. That was December, 2019. Well, now it's, you know, March. And uh, so I've, I'm playing with house money at this point. I've got the absolute best treatment in the entire world. And by the way, I investigated this. So I was willing to travel to Germany, Japan, the UK, anywhere that I had to, to try and get the best treatment. It happened to be that I get the best treatment at Mayo Clinic with the most famous person in the business. And I did a self-referral. I used every journalism skill I had in order to get referred to him. In other words, I referred myself. I broke every rule known to man to do that. And by the way, let's just say it worked. It like worked. breaking all those rules worked. Yeah, I would be dead normally. If I didn't have $4,000, I'd be dead, which is the sad part. If I didn't have the resources to travel to Rochester, Minnesota, I'd be dead if I didn't go to him. So one of the things that happens with people with pancreatic cancer is they often get surgery first. Now, I'm not giving any clinical advice here, but I just want to say to people that one of the things that happens, pancreatic cancer metastasizes in a really nasty way. And that's why most people die really quickly from it. They don't usually last even more than a few months. But this doctor has a protocol. He's developed these chemotherapy regimens. So it's uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy and then radiation and then surgery. And you know, as he says, you know, you don't want these little, little dandelions of metastases floating around in your body because then that's how you die. And so if they go in and cut, and then, we have all known this. If you cut into a tumor that's hot, it metastasizes, it flips out into your abdomen, your pancreas is behind your stomach, it's like the size of a banana behind your stomach, and you know, all hell breaks loose, and then you you both have been gutted like a fish and you die, right? So like it's a it's like all bad. So I've been really lucky. I'm still standing. 
oddly as healthy as they could be, you know, considering. Well, you know, Frank, as I think about your journey, I've told many of my friends that my brother has been diagnosed with stage three colon cancer. And one of the things that was really helpful for me in kind of processing his diagnosis and his treatment, which is also similar, it's chemo, radiation, and then potentially surgery, is your podcast, man, because you don't <laughs> you don't give into these cancer tropes. You're not praying, but you're also not saying fuck cancer. No. You believe in science. You I believe do. in science. I do. I don't. I just I can't do that. Fuck cancer stuff. I can't do all that negativity, man. Like, I don't I'm not trying to be like too chippy. I just feel like science is the thing. This is why I went to the very best person in the entire world. I believe in the best possible protocols. I feel lucky that I'm living in 2020. I mean, if this had been 2010, I'd be dead now because they didn't have these protocols. So they've really improved. And I've kind of gone at this a little bit one day at a time that sort of, you know, I can't plan too far out in the future because I'm realistic. I mean, I know all these kind of things, but I just don't get into this anger about these things. I don't get into the, oh, you know, it's just going to be okay because it's preordained. No, none of that works for me. Like I had a good attitude about this. I kind of honestly have thought I'm just going to survive this. I know that seems really weird, but I thought that from the day I was diagnosed. Well, actually for the first few minutes, I thought about oh, crap. <laughs> then <laughs> yeah. after that, I thought like, no, nah, you know what? I'm going to make this thing work out. And uh, I've been a lucky guy my whole life and somehow I'm still living the luck, but I do believe in science and that really matters to me. And so I don't have any time for people when they're doing that fuck cancer stuff. I just feel like I know people need to, I don't know, I call it slaying the dragon. So maybe there's a little bit of that, but it's like just sort of, I don't have these kind of fighting this thing and doing, no, man, I just like, I'm, I'm going to these really awesome scientists who are doing these things on my body that are working out. And you know what? I could have been dumb luck. I mean, because I know other people have had, you know, sort of parallel things and they don't always work out, but somehow I got dumb luck so far. You really have this aversion to cancer rubbernecking. So tell me what that is. Cancer rubbernecking is like a phrase that I said, which is why I didn't want to say anything about having cancer in the first place, because I wanted people to not just give me the drive by, which is, you know, slow down, look, go, oh, hey, there's a guy with cancer. And then really what they want to do is rubberneck it so that they can go home and tell others about this sort of thing. That is not caring. That is just, it's rubbernecking. It's just sort of voyeuristically looking at it and going like, hey, man, I know somebody who's going to die, right? Or has got a very good chance of dying. And doesn't that make for really good dinner conversation, right? Like I'm going to tell something and I don't like rubbernecking. I want to have legitimate people who actually care about me. And it's why I was really cautious about saying things about it because I did not want any cancer rubbernecking early on. I wanted to be able to control the narrative. It's even why I made a podcast because I wanted to be able to control the narrative about what people were saying or thinking. And if you felt like you're going to rubberneck me, do not ask me, go away. You know, I'm okay. I haven't heard from you in a long time. I don't need to hear from you now. Tell us a little bit about your podcast. One of the things I love about it is that it's the story of you, but it's also the story of relationships that you've developed along the way. It is. Yeah. The, I call it the adventures of Pan Can Man and Pan Can is what people have pancreatic cancer. So Pan Can. So I call it the adventures of Pan Can Man. I started out just sort of thinking it was going to be like these issues. I call them like almost like comic book issues. And so I just sort of <laughs> told these things that are just going on from a patient perspective, but also sort of the relationships. You know, my wife as a caregiver, what I tell you is really is easy being the patient because like everybody, whatever they want to say that some not great things, but you know, people want to say, they say them, they don't say that to the caregivers at all. So there's that. My sons have had different perspectives, but I also have developed relationships with the nurses at chemo, with my medical oncologist, with my 
surgeon, various people. And so I just try and tell these stories of what happened. Some of it is very, very hard to hear, but I've kind of, you know, laughed through it. You know, I talk about the effects of steroids. Some of it's pretty comical. Some of <laughs> yes. it. Uh, uh, <laughs> that was a highlight. Definitely. Yeah, for, for, a 60, for a 60 year old guy, it's like, yes. Yes. So, right. Exactly. So, I mean, I try and tell what the sort of the truth is. And it was interesting because I thought when I first started making, I hadn't talked about it. I had kind of kept it all sort of secret until I sort of thought I was going to live because I just didn't want to tell a story before that. I don't want a lot of people know in case I was just going down for the count. And it was just like, so gosh, darn discouraging. No one wants to hear that. I, I, as much as the people would say, I want to support you and stuff. Mm, not so much like, you know, so, but once I kind of gotten through some part of a threshold and actually my health had started to improve a little bit, my tumor had started to shrink, you know, I could kind of see light at the end of the tunnel when chemo's coming. I started making these shows. I started telling the real truth about what happens during chemo. It's not pretty, but it's also some kind of funny things happen <laughs> while it's going on. And so I try and I don't want to, in good storytelling fashion, we don't want to just drag people in the mud. I don't want this to be leaving Las Vegas, right? The uh, Elizabeth Shue and Nicolas Cage and like, you know, the sad <laughs> movie, yeah. right? the feel good oh. story. No, I don't want that. I want to like sort of tell that there is a little bit of hope or, you know, you can bounce through these kinds of things. And, you know, we all face adversity, right? I don't have the corner market on bad things that have happened to me. We all had it. We all have them. And I want to give people space to do that. The interesting thing is that there's been a lot of people who listen to that show who are caregivers and adjunct to caregivers that have listened. And uh, I get lots and lots of mail every day of people asking various things. And I got a few more shows in the can that I, you know, that I got to publish here pretty soon. Well, why don't you tell us what's coming up for you? Mike, you've got a big April ahead of you. April 8th? Yeah, I got cut in half, basically. I There's a thing called the Whipple Procedure, and they basically, <laughs> you know, I turned into this scarecrow in which I have very few internal organs left when this is all over. They t- cut out half of my pancreas. My tumor is in the head of my pancreas, and that is right on my bile duct, pushing on my bile duct. That's why I got that jaundice in the first place. I had a couple other metastases. Those seem to have gone down, but we'll find out when I actually am in the surgery. But basically, they cut about a third of your stomach out your ileum, that's the upper part of your small intestine, gallbladder, bile duct, and then they take all of these pieces that are just as slimy as like uh, agar, you know, like this stuff is like printed so jello together. Then they sew all this together and then you hope like heck that it doesn't leak because if it leaks, then that's all bad news. So, but your pancreas makes enzymes that have sort of the function of doing insulin and then hormone balance. And so you got to have, well, you can do without one. You can, there is such thing as a total pancreatectomy, but then you're a type one diabetic and in a bad way. So I'm going to have half a pancreas and a rerouted stomach. And by the way, they're not going to do any of these like stoma and all these kind of things. That is what they do is sew it all back together. And then you're in intensive care for about anywhere 10 to 14 days with all kinds of bad things that go along with that. So you've gotten all this to, you know, sometimes they have to cut a little piece of your liver off. There are various things that can happen. It just depends until once they open you up, determine how many lymph nodes are involved and so on and so forth. They won't know. So they cut you stem to stern, right? From the sternum all the way down to your pelvic bone, split you open, mess around with all this stuff. Pancreas is in a really bad spot. Sew it all back together. Oh, by the way, because I have an artery that's involved, that's kind of bad, right? So like they got to cut that artery <laughs> hope you don't bleed out. And then sew that back together. There's all kinds of things that have to go on. And then, um, yeah, they sew you back up or st- you know, staple you back up. You know, that's why I'm going to the best surgeon in the whole world. 
it's not going to be comfortable. I know that. I know lots of people uh, for my show. I've interviewed and talked to lots and lots of people who have gone through this procedure and it hurts. Look, I used to, I recalibrated my pain threshold. I used to like have to take a week off work for a hangnail. And uh, if I got a man cold, I had to go in intensive care, right? Like I was like, now, I mean, yeah, I got pancreas pain that, you know, two years ago would have felled me. I just walk around with it, whatever. I can't feel my hands, can't feel my feet from the chemo, that's neuropathy, all this kind of junk. But who cares? Whatever. I'm still walking. You know, I was just thinking this cancer diet sucks. You know, it like really sucks because you're going to get part of your stomach removed, right? Your pancreas. This is terrible. This is a terrible way to live, a terrible way to lose weight. All of it is just... Oh, God. I am not looking forward to this. I have a a small amount of anxiety only in that, geez, um, life is going to be really different after. Well, I was just going to ask that. So you're going to do this thing where your your whole insides are reconfigured. What's life going to be like after that? Have you envisioned it? So you know what? This is actually funny, Lori. I just got 25 rounds of radiation out at Mayo over the January and February. And so one of the days I had a follow-up once a week, you have to meet with both the radiation oncologist and the nurse. And so the nurse is a lady, she's like in her 60s. And I tell her, she goes, how's it going? I said, "My, I have a really bad headache and I almost never get headaches, but I have a really bad headache. And she says, where is it? And, you know, I say, look, it's on my neck and my back of my head. And she said, I understand that just yesterday that you got your schedule for your surgery. And I said, yeah. And she said, and you're walking around thinking about all these things they're going to do to you, right? The very things I just described. I said, yeah. And she said, I want you to do this. I want you to leave here and I want you to go on a long walk. And I want you to walk around and visualize how healthy you're going to be a year from now. I want you to think about standing up straight. I want you to think about the fact that you're going to be able to eat normal food. And I want you to think about the fact that you're going to be alive. You know what? Solved my headache. It freaking like that afternoon, I swear to God, I was like, I couldn't take any more Tylenol. Then all of a sudden it was just like kind of gone, you know, and I'm not too cosmic with this stuff. I'm not a meditator. I'm not a, I just don't do that stuff. But the idea of visualizing what life will be like a year from now, and it'll take about a year to recover. But imagine what a year will be like and then say, okay, look, you know what? Each of these other little days, the other 364 up to that day will just be steps along the way. So just deal with it. I love these old nurses. Actually, I love nurses. <laughs> I love nurses. Like this is like my, I was completely healthy with my entire life. I had no idea, but I love nurses. Like they are the, they're like the truth. They are. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Frank, this has been an amazing conversation. I don't say that lightly. It makes me think about how lucky I am that our paths crossed all those years ago and how much I've benefited from it and how I continue to try not to be a sucker because of you. So thank you for that. Lori, I have uh, much admired your thought process, your moxie, and your ability to market. I think that you have shown the way for a lot of people on how to do this. I know they would just like to snap their fingers and just, you know, all of a sudden be keynoting uh, events. <laughs> yeah. Me and, too. Uh, I want to snap my fingers and make shit happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're not going to be doing that with coronavirus, but you have done this. You have shown real leadership all along the way. And so I'm really pleased to be on your show. I hope that uh, it's beneficial for your audience. Absolutely. Thanks again, Frank. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Frank Roche. As always, we've got tips, takeaways, ideas for you at laurierudeman.com forward slash punkrockhr-99.
This week's Let's Fix Work was produced by Danny Osmond and his team at Emerald City Production. And we're still getting the hang of punk rock HR. But if you have any feedback, you have some ideas for us, or you have a great guest that you think is totally breaking the rules in the world of work or the world of HR, find me on social media everywhere at L Rudiman. Now that's all for today, and I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Punk Rock HR.